Hi, I'm Kevin Smith, and if you've been listening to the Red State of the Union Q&A podcast series, then you know that voice. That's the voice of Pastor Aben Cooper, our big baddie in the movie. But it's also the voice of the man who plays him, and that man is the genius actor, Mr. Michael Parks. I am not speaking hyperbolically when I say Michael Parks has turned in one of the five greatest performances I've ever seen in my lifetime. And I'm 40, kids, and in a couple months, this man's name is going to be on everybody's lips, man. Don't be left out in the cold going, who's Michael Parks? I have no idea. Do your homework, man. It's cutthroat world out there. Nerd against nerd, man. And having useful information about useless trivia is just like having the biggest dick on the planet, man. And basically, you want to be the guy. When people are starting to talk about Red State, you're going to want to be like, well, I've been a huge fan of Michael Parks since then came Bronson. That's right, man. Michael Parks starred in a television show years ago called Then Came Bronson. And it's a cult favorite. And it's what turned a lot of us on to Michael Parks in the first place. Quentin Tarantino, Robert Rodriguez, uh, me. The, uh, this is a guy who's acting we loved because it was so goddamn unique and off the beaten path. And this was how most of us got introduced to him by the TV show Then Came Bronson. Well... There's only one place to get that TV show. That's right. The Warner Archive is selling this television cult classic. Then came Bronson, starring the great Michael Parks. Bonnie Bedelia's in it. Martin Sheen's in it. It's an hour and a half movie, and it's basically the pilot flick that kicked off the TV series. Here's the synopsis. Listen to this. How badass this is. Man, this is so late 60s. A Harley Roadster, a bedroll, a lonely stretch of highway. Jim Bronson is traveling where the road and the day take him, trying to make sense of things after the suicide of his close friend. And if that plot doesn't call to you, I promise you that performance will. You're in a forum chat room on a website talking back to each other and whatnot, and it's cutthroat. You know how bloody it gets there. You're going to want to have all the park's information at your fingertips so you could crush fools and trolls, man. Make them look goddamn stupid by being like, listen, man, you may like parks now, but I like classic parks. I've been going way back. Me and parks are like this. I've been watching since 1969, even if you were born in 1983. That's going to be what you're able to say. Once you go to the WBShop.com, click on the Warner Archive, click on TV movies and series, and then click on Then Came Bronson, starring Mr. Michael Parks, the star of our forthcoming Red State. Um, the Warner Archive collection, man, has 700-plus Warner Brothers films, TV shows, and shorts that they're putting on DVD for the first time. And not just DVD. You can order the shit, download it right to your laptop. Titles include a wide-ranging selection of hidden classics. We're talking about titles that haven't been released previously on DVD. They've only been available, in most cases, from bootleggers. That's how I got my copy of Then Came Bronson back in the day, man. I had to buy it at a Comic-Con from an unsavory character at a table full of bootlegs and and he, I felt like a junkie of some in some way because I was like I know I'm better than this but I need my fix give me then came Bronson and I overpaid for it too these Warner Archive cats aren't charging nearly what I paid for the fucking pilot flick of the overseas cut of the movie and that's what this is we're not just talking about the pilot that was shown in the states man this is the one that was shown overseas so you're going to see footage that wasn't available in the US telecast this is the international version bitch and that's how the Warner Archive works they create box covers from the original art found in the extensive Warner Brother libraries. Each title of the Warner Archive collection is offered as made on demand. That means when you order it, they're making it. They don't have a warehouse full of this shit. 
You're going to order it, they're going to make it, they're going to send it to you. Or you're going to order it, you're going to download it. Almost instantly, new titles are released every week. This is a great idea, a great program that Warner's Brothers is doing. And guess what? Put SMOD in the promotion code when you're going to pay for this. They're going to give you five bucks off. Warner Brothers is going to give five dollars off. If you've been listening to the Red State of the Union Q&As, you know that we're trying to drop a little film school here. Well, this is required reading for film school. It's like buying a textbook. Go to the WBShop.com, go to Warner Archives, and make sure you pick up a copy of Then Came Bronson, starring Michael Parks, the star of our film Red State. You won't regret it. It's a classic. Thank you. Um, welcome back. This is uh, episode four of Red State of the Union Q&As. And uh, we're going to concentrate on what was probably the most crucial aspect of this movie, uh, casting. Today we're going to talk about casting. And you're going to meet one of the hard-workingest, most-workingest, accredited fucking casting directors on the planet who we were lucky enough to score for our picture um, but I'm going to first start off by showing you guys a scene. This is a scene that happens early in the movie. It's probably after the opening credits, right after there are, there's only one card to open the movie. And then there's uh, basically a, a sequence between uh, the Michael Angarano character and his mother in the car, and then we kind of go right to this. So this is way up front, way early in the movie, uh, and it kind of sets the tone and, and lets you know about our character, Aben Cooper, long before you see him and whatnot. Uh, but check this out. Look at the wonderful job of a uh, performance we got, uh, performances we got across the boards, uh, in this scene. And then afterwards, we'll talk about the woman responsible for all this. So let's kill the lights, Matt, and give it a run. There go the Christmas lights. When the framers of our Constitution adopted a Bill of Rights, you know, they kind of forgot to spell out exactly what an American civil liberties actually were. What, Travis? Fifteen minutes. Where you been? I was dropping my grandma off at the airport, and on the way back, the uh, five-pointers blocked up Lenox Hill. Oh, so Aben Cooper's after you two now? Yeah. And I ain't even gay. <laughs> nah, you're not gay. You're just curious. And if anybody would know, it would be Jared. Oh, 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 all right, all right, all right. <laughs> so every once in a while, we add amendments to the Constitution to expand, or more importantly, define the parameters of our rights. Like the First Amendment, which Abe and Cooper practiced this morning on Lennox, making Travis late. These people are such assholes. Oh, okay, I'm going to let that ride because this is a passionate issue. And because, yes, they are assholes. Right? So. <laughs> Wait, who's Avon Cooper? He's that um, creepy church guy that's always saying how God's all pissed off at everybody. Yeah, him and his family are the ones that are always holding up signs outside of funerals and stuff. This was, they was protesting the uh, funeral of the gay kid got killed two weeks ago. Yeah, Jacob Harlow. Jacob Harlow. He went here. I didn't teach him, but he went here. I mean, it was all over the news, right? Jesse, I am both happy and sad that you don't know who Aben Cooper is, but, I mean, come on. Aben Cooper and the Five Points Trinity Church, they're like right in our own backyard. Oh, come on, Miss Vasquez, Cooper's Dell's like 30 minutes away. Yeah, too close. Aben Cooper holds our entire state up for ridicule, right? Ultra-conservatives avoid this guy. 
Did you know last year, the head of the largest neo-Nazi faction in this country issued a statement distancing his politics from Cooper's and Five Points? Even the Nazis think this guy's knocking futz. <laughs> no, I mean, you know, so look, this, this ties back into our whole Bill of Rights discussion. As crazy as you think his antics are, the First Amendment affords folks like Aben Cooper the freedom to express his extremely fundamentalist religious belief in public without fear of persecution. But that doesn't mean that we have to agree with him. No, you don't have to agree with him. Exactly right. You don't have to agree with him, but you have to respect his right to speak his mind. His so-called mind. Let's just all right. Let's just hope that the Cooper clan sticks with the First Amendment and stays far, far away from the Second Amendment. What is the Second Amendment? We get guns. Uh, in filmmaking, folks, uh, you can bring lights up, thanks. In filmmaking, uh, that's what you call a very expository scene. That kind of sets up uh, all the information you need to know for everything that's about to follow. <clears throat> Those scenes are always the trickiest for any actor to pull off because essentially you're just a cipher for information. Most people kind of give it that exact delivery, making sure that they make sure all the T's are crossed and the I's are dotted so that the information, the very important information they're carrying to kickstart the, the flick um, carries through and whatever's being said by their character because the writer, and in this case the director, is counting on them. Now, what you rarely get out of an actor is somebody who takes expository dialogue uh, and turns it into a kind of winning scene. Like, I was so happy with that scene because there's a lot of information imparted in there, but it's actually fairly entertaining to watch, and that has everything to do with the performances in the scene, but chiefly with the performance of the teacher in the classroom, and we got really lucky. Uh, it was tough to find uh, that actress. That actress has never worked before, um, yet in a film, yet the actress has worked forever and is a well-honed, artist machine who can act her fucking ass off because she's been casting movies for the last few decades the lady who played the teacher in the scene is also our casting director on red state so i want to introduce her to you and let you get to know her right now ladies and gentlemen give it up for deb aquila Now, the thing that's, that's noteworthy uh, is not that you're the casting director of the movie and we put you in the movie. You've been casting directing for how many years now? 27. I mean, 10. Um, and your name has been on how many movies? And we're talking big movies, way bigger than the shit I do. 118, 119. And so you've been working forever and ever and ever. Yeah. I asked Deb at one point, we're putting together the flick, and it was me and John Gordon going through the list of who we needed to cast. And uh, John was like, uh, who are we going to go with the teacher? And I was like, I don't know. Uh, we were talking about this person, that person. And then almost simultaneously, we were just like, what about Deb? <laughs> like, what about Deb? Because Deb was kind of the godmother of the movie, if, or the fifth Beatle, if you will, or even you became the third Beatle. <laughs> you moved right into the fucking quartet, if you will, because uh, you were such a crucial link linchpin on the flick, you had faith and you kept it going when everyone kept saying no and people weren't, you know, interested in financing in the least and talent would pass left and right. 
You always had your eye on the ball and you were always like, no, 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 this is important. This is about something. Gave us cut fucking rates because, you know, you, you normally you charge out the ass, these fucking <laughs> studios, man. Uh, they have no idea how much you pump your bills up. I do. But uh, mercifully, you, you cut us a real fucking break and whatnot. And so at the end of the process, you waited with us for almost three years to get the movie made. So here we were about to cast and we're like, who better? Then her, uh, the spiritual godmother of the chick, the, 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 of the flick, the chick who really kept us going when me and John Gordon were just like, nobody wants to do this. Like, I guess it's fucking terrible and we're just seeing a movie that doesn't exist. So when it was all said and done and time to cast that role, I was like, who better than you to play it? And I called her up or, or maybe it was via email through John. Was it email? It was you, then John, then you again. Yes. And John again. To invite you to be like, look, we want you to play the teacher. And we thought she'd be like, great. Oh, my God. That's so cool. <laughs> but she was like, oh, no. Oh, I can't do that. <laughs> I was like, what are you talking about? You'd crush it. And she was like, oh, I couldn't take a job away from a real actor. And I was just like, you fucking putz. When <laughs> somebody offers you in a role in a movie, you take it. And I looked at your IMDb page and never. You, you've never acted never. in a flick. And Deb's name is on fucking huge movies. And I hear Deb's voice all the time and i hear deb acting all the time and i've acted opposite deb because she cast uh catch and release so i actually had to come in and do a dialogue opposite deb and rather than like some casting people who kind of read with you very flatly and just kind of give you the lines to bounce off deb's in a scene with you you forget your auditioning because she's so damn good because you care about the craft you you teach acting you've dedicated your life to acting but boosting up others getting others to a place where they can light their let their light shine and it befuddled me that you had never stepped up and i was like she must have never been asked but you had been asked why did you never do it and why this fucking flick okay uh because of you right because this movie means something because of you right and i just the moral compass started spinning i could never really just i could never wrap my head around taking a job away from an actor as we talked about and also crossing that boundary that that line between casting and actually being in a film uh is just something that the etiquette of it is odd it's, it's dicey because then people are like, bit. well, if you hire her, she might try to put herself in exactly. the fucking movie. And exactly. that's why you've stayed away from it because yeah. it's not good for your business. Or well, whatever. and also because I really believe that, you know, I mean, actors need, actors need these parts, these roles, these jobs. That is so fucking Gretzky, man. You know, <laughs> to be looking out for some other fucking schmoes and shit who'd step on your neck to make their <laughs> dream come true. You're a beautiful person. Tell me about how does somebody become a casting director? How did it begin? Uh, it began with me. I was a I was an actor um, at NYU. I studied mm -hmm. acting. I studied. Um, I realized sort of very quickly uh, by my junior year that I was not comfortable. Can you tell in front of uh, an arena that I was much more comfortable behind the stage. Um, and I was blessed to be with a teacher for almost seven years uh, who was just a giant in New York. Her name was Stella Adler, and she was my mentor. And so when I left performance, got out of her line of fire, um, I was able to concentrate on script analysis and um, really taking a script apart, sort of analyzing it from top to bottom, and then doing a direct a direct application uh, for the for the actor. 
Now, which explain is what this. she. So, what is that exactly? Because you first time you said it to me, I was like, "That sounds artsy fartsy," but it's actually really crucial. It, it's and crucial, kind of, yeah, for an actor particularly. Yeah, and it does sound artsy fartsy. It's it's she developed something that you know she sort of she's she studied with Stanislavski herself. She spoke to him in Russian actually, and she was the only person to do that. And from from America in the group theater, and she developed a system based on his teachings, mm-hmm. where you take a script and you do a complete backstory mm-hmm. for for each character uh so you you take a script you do a backstory based on the author's intent Mm -hmm. um always with keeping in mind which play you're in which screenplay you're in you you don't want to sort of veer into fantasy land and not be in red state right right, right. (laughs) like suddenly you're doing a performance where i'm like this is something out of fucking disney uh, yeah exactly right exactly right a cuckoo's nest right so so you want to make sure that you stay within the author's uh intent and the the theme of the piece you take each character and i do this for casting this is how i cast so you so what an actor does for one part i do for 30 right so you know of course talking to you the author and you know and i was very little help on this one on this one i was just like you know what deb you're smart you figure it out and <laughs> and, and it really worked you know at first there was a little like i don't know are you sure and i was like well there's <laughs> some people i know that we want but other than that sky's the limit and john gordon kind of took the gloves off yeah and i've spoken about it here i think but it bears repeating here but when he was just like we have our money like our money is now in the bank right and it's not cash dependent we got our our cash based on the script based on uh, us based on whatever but none of the elements were like well it's cast contingent unless you get this fucking dude you ain't getting any money so, you know, he was like, with that in mind, we can cast anybody we want. We right. never have to cast the movie with an eye toward like, well, this person will get on The Tonight Show and that'll get us a few more press hits or this person is good in an overseas market. We can literally just kind of go with like, who do we like? Mm-hmm. So, you know, and, and if for it, to some degree, I, 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 you probably get way more input from a director normally. Mm-hmm. But on this flick, I was just like, I don't know. What do you think, man? Let you go with it. And you came up with fantastic fucking ideas and we'll get into red state in a bit but let's stay with you for a bit so you take the script break it down and then you're imparting that to uh, talk about you've got a casting agency yes you work with a bunch of actors regularly you refer to them as your kids no, or people that um, come through well, but, faves you, know, you have no not well i i i'm old kevin i see a lot of people right over a course of a few decades so and you've launched fucking careers and shit too I've seen You're them so since modest. they're little, and here they are. And, right. You know, they're wonderful actors. And, you know, you, you're blessed to do a search, and you find um, an actor walk in the room, and you know that that's the actor. Right. And there is no one else that can play the role. You just know it's that actor. Just you, just, you just know it. You just see it. You've, you've done the work. You've read hundreds of people. Um, if it's a difficult search like Primal Fear, you know it's a difficult search. Right. You're all over the country. You know it and you spot it. And was the that you? You found Ed Norton or brought mm-hmm. Ed Norton in? It, there's a lot of uh, legend and lore about the this this story. It actually makes me makes me smile because you, um, many people apparently have called me and told me to see Edward Norton. Right. Uh huh. So. Um, you know, he, he had just graduated from Yale and bless his heart. He was doing it in New York. You know, he's one of the smartest humans you'll ever meet and one of the nicest and good, good person. And he was doing the New York actor thing. Mm-hmm. And he had just, if I, if memory serves correctly, he had just, um, 
gotten something at the signature theater is what I want to say. And he was about to do that. And he came in and we, we hit New York. That was our 17th city. New York's my hometown. I should have started there. Mm. Uh, we had tra- you know, we had gotten, um, submissions from three different countries. Mm-hmm. And by the time I got to New York, we were literally six weeks before production. And, and they it, still hadn't cast that role. Couldn't find it. And that's like a linchpin role. It's like Richard Gere and that role is it, the whole movie. Of a lot of pressure. Theater. I was the head of casting at Paramount Pictures. I fired myself three times. <laughs> So, I, you know, but I, I, you know, then there you go. Kismet, luck. So you watch, you watch and what it takes. I saw 65 people that day. Right. And one of those people was Edward. And so you immediately call the director and be like. I just sort of looked at him and I actually thought I'd lost perspective. So I, I asked him to go away and I said, would you please come back tomorrow? I took what I guess is now called a power nap. Right. (laughs) Because I thought, okay. So he came back the next day and he did it better. Really? So I don't know how that works. I mean, the guy is just a genius. I called the director that minute, Greg Hoplett. I said, please get on the three o'clock plane. To come out and see him. Yep. Do it in person. Yeah. And right over the boom. And then we, we made arrangements the next day. He saw it. We were all very excited. We made the arrangements, called the studio, called Sherry, John Goldwyn, said, please, let's do the screen test. And they liked him, and suddenly you were off. And that's a guy who comes out of nowhere. It's not like, well, he's been in this and that, and people liked him in this or that. Right. That's a tougher sell to a studio. Do you have to get involved in that kind of thing? Where well, like, luckily, I was head of casting. So that helped, <laughs> that helped a great deal on that. So one. that sort of helped. How but, many other? What are the people besides uh, Ed Norton that you that you were kind of? I know you're not boasting and shit, but who are the people? Name a few flicks. Just throw out some names, man. Pull the dick out and show everyone <laughs> how fucking big Deb Ackles' dick is. <laughs> um, well, I'll tell you, I'll kick it off because I know two movies you cast because I was in both of them. Catch and Release is one, Live Free or Die Hard was the other. Yep. Um, and you thought of me for, I think, uh, well, I came in on Catch and Release yep. and you dug me. And then like months later, you were working with Len Wiseman. You're yep. like, you know who's who's fat and could play this? <laughs> <laughs> Kevin Smith. And so you brought me in to meet Len and stuff. And, and, and so you've been a little cheerleader of mine for a bit. But those are two movies that I know of. Throw them the big ones. We got Primal Fear. What else have you done? Shawshank. Okay. That's um, fucking huge. Let's talk about casting Shawshank. <laughs> now, see? <laughs> Now, where now? Who are the big catches for you in that? Like, do you go into oh. something like that, going, "How about Morgan Freeman?" Or does uh, the director uh, come to you? I came like, on after Morgan was cast, okay, um, and after Tim had signed on, mm-hmm. and then they Frank met a lot of casting directors, and I was out here doing a film. I was doing what was I doing? Imaginary Crimes, I want to say for Tony Drazen, mm-hmm. and then um, I just I I had. Jessie was three years old then, and she's 21 now. Um, and uh, I went back to New York, because I actually did that movie Commuting, Monday to Friday. Get out of here. Yeah, I did. And, you know, mom was at home watching the baby, and I would commute back and forth. And so I was back home, um, and I had finished the film, and Frank called, and he said, well, let's do this. Because really and truly, we laughed during the whole interview. I mean, I've just, it's like this connection. Yeah, I just, you got and I just well laughed. You've worked I mean, with them a lot, right? Yeah. And it, we just had a great chemistry and we, we, we seemed to like the same kind of actors and uh, tonally, thematically, we sort of got each other on, on, I was on the right wavelength. 
And he said, great, so you got it, come on out. I was like, oh, great, this is so exciting. He said, good, so you've got two weeks to move. Yeah. And where did you have to move I had a mother, a child, an apartment to unpack, and a husband. And it was like, uh, okay. Right, see you in two weeks. Right, (laughs) back to work, right to work. It's good that my husband was, you know, Israeli soldier. He knew how to mobilize. (laughs) So (laughs) That helps, yes. He could also kill if he had to. So there you go. And um, out we came. How and 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 what what is your role on a film in general? How long do you stick around? Uh, well, you know, it's funny cuz you know, it's it depends on the film. Right. But usually we're the first on and the first off. Right. So the casting process, well, you know, Primal Fear the casting process took five and a half months almost. Mm-hmm. Um Shawshank took just as long. Right. Because there were, there were so many parts. And we had to get each category right. You know, the category, the sisters in the prison, the prisoners, and the guards. Right. And we had to get them perfectly, and the warden. So that took quite a long time. And then I had to go down to Mansfield, Ohio with Frank. I cast from the prison. That's a whole other story. Is that where you guys shot in Ohio? Yeah, we shot in Mansfield, Ohio. We shot in that beautiful um, prison, you know, Uh that you see in the front. Uh That's abandoned. And behind it is the newly built prison. Right. So... We, uh, they, they sort of refurbished part of what we, they could afford to. It's humongous, that prison, that Victorian prison. So they just sort of, um, redid and remodeled what they needed to shoot in. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the real prison, the newly built prison was behind it. It's where they just, they had the riot a week before we arrived. Get out of here. Yeah. You must was, have felt safe. Thank God yeah, for the Israeli <laughs> soldier husband. <laughs> He was back home <laughs> in California unpacking. Right. So uh, we got there and uh, we started interviewing prisoners until the insurance company said, really? Because you were going to cast them as extras? Yeah. Did you cast them as extras? No, because the insurance company said, really? Really? Because they no. were just like, someone's going to get killed. And you're uh-huh. like, yeah, but it'll look authentic. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> no, that didn't fly. So, no, but we did, we did end up casting a lot of the guards. Did you really? I interviewed all the guards, then they came in and they did readings with Frank, and then we did it on tape, and then we came back to Los Angeles and had late, late, late nights with a library ladder with hundreds of pictures on a wall that we would just stare at until midnight. Get up, move a picture, put it over there in different categories, and that's the way it went. And your process, um, I mean, you work very closely with the director, but also before it comes to the director, you work really closely with... Uh, it was pieces on this movie. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and she was kind of your right hand. Lisa Zagoria. Yeah. 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 Fondly she, called pieces. Yes. That's, that's <laughs> a, I heard you call, I kept hearing you say something about pieces, this pieces, <laughs> that. And then I realized, Oh, that's what she calls Lisa. Um, so she's, she was a sweetheart. How heavily do you lean on her? And is she a train? Are you training her or is that? Lisa's been with us now. I think it's three years. If I get that wrong, I know she's going to kill me tomorrow morning, but I think it's three years now. Um, my partner, Trisha, and I have been together for 16 and a half years. Good Lord. Um, and Jen Smith, who you, I don't know if you've met, Jen Smith has been with us now almost 10 years. So we've been together a long time. I'm really proud of keeping the family together. So, and it's a real non-sausage party over there. <laughs> it's just you guys must all be on the same cycle constantly. <laughs> pretty much. Yeah, pretty much. No doubt. And Aaron Toner. I can't forget Aaron Toner, of course, because they're the two rocks of the office, Lisa and Aaron. 
Um, what have you done uh, this year? What was the last, uh, let's say the last two years, the last few productions you've been working on and stuff? And uh, can you work on more than one yes. at one time? Yes. I don't like to, but we do. And because there are two, well, there are, there are three casting directors now. So Jen Smith is now doing sort of her own thing mm. as well within the company. Right. Trisha does a lot of her own thing. And sometimes we do it together, you know. So like, for instance, we're all doing Hansel and Gretel together. And what's that now? Uh, that's, that's really fantastic. It's... Um, um, Hansel and Gretel grow up, and they're witch hunters. Who's doing that? Uh, Jeremy Renner just signed on right on, um, as Hansel, and we don't have our Gretel yet, so we're looking for Gretel. And is, was he one of yours? Was Renner one of your guys, or is that some dude you met recently? No, I met him when he did Dahmer. Okay, with David Jacobson. Now you have people that like in in this uh, when when we were casting Red State. Um, you were like, how many people you want to see? Uh, you want them all on tape? You want to see them in person? And I was just like, let's just make this easiest on, on me as possible. Give me your top three choices for every role. And I so couldn't. I put the responsibility back on your shoulders. Which I couldn't do. No, but you did. You managed to do it. You managed to weed through and find the strongest for each and kind of put them forward and from there it was usually like your first choices yeah. that wound up being in the flick and crucial were, were the boys the casting of the boys because we knew um i'd written it for michael parks and we knew going in we wanted michael parks um the boys uh we spend a lot of time within the movie the first 15 minutes before we even get to the cooper clan mm -hmm. so you wanted really authentic cats in there who could carry it and make it live because it was again more expository shit to, to, to some degree and so finding the right boys was so crucial and you not only you delivered uh three excellent actors who were so great they not only aced this flick like they're in the next flick as well you know they were just so good and that was uh, uh nicholas kyle Braun, gallner kyle Nic nicholas Braun, kyle uh gallner and michael angarano mm -hmm. now uh, nick and kyle were two guys who'd come through your office regularly or that you would well nick i mean kyle is and kyle too yeah i have to say i mean michael's been working for a long time so was kyle so was nick i mean i have to say but that long time relatively they're young people um but nicholas is nicholas is somebody that's He's so tall. Nick Nick Braun is a fucking giant. And I, we just announced on this other podcast I do in Hollywood Babylon that he's the lead in Hit Somebody, which is the movie I'm going to do next. Fantastic. And the fact that you gifted me with this actor on this movie and that movie is astounding. He looks like a hockey player. Motherfucker is like 7'2 or yeah. some such shit. Um, when I hug him, my face is in his balls. <laughs> That's how tall he is. So, and, and add to that, he so fucking sweet. So yeah. he was definitely what I, what is looking for yeah, in no, the lead just, character. Yeah. But you had cast him in other things or he well, been we tried. through the office? Yeah. Gosh, we tried. So yeah. are there people that you're just like, I like these people and you push them and push them and. Well, you meet them, you know, and then of course, if they're right for a role in your film, you know, you, you immediately want to bring them back, you know, and then you get to know them over the course of years and, so many people have come through my door mm -hmm. and they, after a while, you know, whether we work or not together, we sit, we chat, we get to know each other and all of a sudden they become acquaintances. And then before you know it, it's, it's just, Hey, how are you? What's new? How's the family? You know? And then, Oh, right. We have to audition. Right, right. <laughs> so it's, it's that kind Is of thing. Is there a heartbreaking part of the job for you still after Always. doing it all this time? It really never gets easier where it's like sooner or later, you got to disappoint a bunch of people. You make one person very happy and you make a lot of people kind of like, why, why not me? 
is that and that never gets easier to deal with i would know look at yeah it's tough still Mm -mm. right and Mm -mm. you're such a sensitive person too one of those (laughs) big bleeding hearts like i can imagine they could wrap you around their fingers absolutely i would totally be the actor that's just like I was really counting on that, Deb. Okay, you know. yeah, yeah. And you'll just see me cutting my wrists in the back right <laughs> no there, doubt. you know. Call how, the ambulance. How tough is it? Is it's it? It's really hard. Right. It's really hard if, you know, you want to give them all a shot, you know, but, but, you know, it's, it's a business. Right. And you have to also service the, the director and the, the writer and the film itself. And they know that. Right. You know, not everybody's right for everything and, and persona plays a big part of it. So even they, they might act the part mm-hmm. well, but if there's that 25% that's just not that role that you wrote, right. something's wrong. And you, though you can't always articulate it, mm-hmm. you know, something inside, you know, like we talked about, there Absolutely. were kids that were right for it and there were kids that, you know, you were like, I don't know. I describe it thusly. There are people that smell like they're acting. There are right. people, you know what I'm saying? And it's not that they're bad by right. any stretch of the imagination. Mm-hmm. And they'd probably been totally good in some other version of this that I was doing. But I was looking for cats that just reeked of authenticity, like didn't look like they were acting at all. Literally, I was trying to shoot the Bad News Bears, one of my favorite movies of all time, because none of those kids look like they're acting. That right. movie just looked like it was fucking happening. I don't know what Michael Ritchie did, but those that those performances aren't beyond uh, brilliant from those kids right. and i was kind of hoping you know we're not doing little kids in this movie but i was kind of hoping with our kids they would just come across more naturalistic more so than anything i'd ever done before i generally do kind of stylized stuff with stylized dialogue so everyone um kind of sounds like they're acting to a large degree and i didn't want that for this right. so i went to you going like give me the natural ones and those kids all three of them were so i mean they're like i keep saying kids they're like late in their mid-20s or something like that they uh they came across incredibly natural now do you work you do, i remember a few you talked about working with where you kind of do that character breakdown do you do classes as well in regards to the casting director thing what is it well that you- for years i've I've been utilizing this, what I learned at NYU and mm. what, what I was happiest with and what Stella gave me, um, in my casting life. But you know, it also services you because when you're working, say you're working with kids, right? And they're, you really want to get that naturalistic performance. You know how to do it. Right. Because you've been trained, right? So I'll know how to speak to an actor in a way where I can sort of get, what you might need out of them, you know, and sometimes there are actors, uh, there are directors that speak an actor's language and sometimes there aren't, right? Mm-hmm. You, you know, it depends on their training. So if, if the communication's breaking down, sometimes they'll look at me. And if I know that I'll only do that if I know the director really well and we've worked together for 15 or 16 years and they'll just say translate and I'll translate it in their, their language. Right. And, uh, and then we'll work to get it sort of, sort of that naturalistic feel to it with a depth. So I talk a lot about engines right? and their engines, when you get their engines going and there's that internal engine that's real and alive mm-hmm. and filled. For instance, go ahead. The cage scene. Yes. We can know. Right. Because it, yeah. you talked about it. Yeah, right. Yeah, I, yeah. That's right. Look at um, you. You like spoilers. <laughs> so, but I remembered, yes, you mentioned it. So in order to possibly get that right, right. to keep that filled, to keep that alive, so that we're in it when we're watching it. Yes. He has to be 100% there. Kyle. Kyle yep. was the one in the yep. cage. 
And yep. he was. Yep. He was 100% there, more so than uh, most actors I've ever worked with before. He's like a Matty Damon where Matt, it's not enough to play drunk. Matt's got to spin around for about an hour so he's dizzy so that when you call action, he feels drunk as right. well. And Kyle was the kind of guy where he had to go d- dark places in the scene. He kind of goes through some of the worst shit in the movie. And he would sit there with uh, like uh, his uh, Walkman on, uh-huh. Walkman, fucking like it was the 80s. He was sitting there, <laughs> he'd just gotten through the time barrier with his flux capacitor, and he was listening to a large boombox. No, he had his uh, iPod on, his headphones, and um, he was just kind of listening to, I guess, uh, pretty speed metal or nasty fucking dark tunes or whatever, because then he would kind of take it off and we'd stuff him in the cage and, you know, he'd fucking go for it. And... The way he's screaming, you bought it, man. Yeah. Like in a big bad way, and it, it was it was authentic. And he would go to a really dark place, mm-hmm. like twenty minutes before you'd start shooting, and you felt bad for him every fucking time. I was like, why? Why does it have to be so hard for this kid? Like, I just wanted to do the old Dustin Hoffman thing of like, hey man, psst, just act. <laughs> like you know, don't put yourself through all this pain. But the fact that he did resulted in just a sickeningly real performance, yep. man. And you do buy. That he's in the cage and you are the enter the engine is there because yep. he you buy that he's in that moment. Yep. You know how I could tell that's real how? and true? I was listening to you as I was walking this morning, right? So you were right in my head. Right. And you played that scene. Yes. So I didn't have the visual. Of course I'd seen it once, but right. I didn't have the visual in front of me. And as I was walking, I could I could just feel myself starting to cry just from that. The screaming right. and the the because the, you felt his emotion, you were just you like, felt this it, and you f- you felt the vocal intensity of it was so truthful mm-hmm. that it doesn't. You don't need to see the visual. That's my test, right? And that's a that is one really fine performance moment in a movie that is fucking chock a block full of them, and it's a real actors' clinic movie. It's actors' catnip. Like while we were making the movie, we were having a blast knowing that. Not only were we doing a good job in the present, we were paving the way for the future. Because it's going to be so easy to cast hit somebody mm-hmm. once actors see Red State. Because they're like, oh shit, that's what you're allowed to do over on a Kevin Smith set? Sign me up. I don't care what it fucking costs. Put a dick in my mouth, you know, <laughs> uh, so to speak. So, uh, <laughs> so it was, uh, we got, uh, we were really blessed because you found really great, authentic, real people to, to stuff in the movie, yourself included. Now, we just watched the scene that you're in. And again, like I, I gave you props. That was a tough scene because it was expository. Like I didn't even want to shoot it on some level because I'm like, oh, it's just information. But you came in and fucking crushed it. Like by the first take, everyone kept coming over going, who's the chick? Who is that? Who is that? You know? And I'm like, that's the casting director, man. Isn't that fucked? She stole a job from an actor. <laughs> she did. She did. She Crucify had her. zero compunction about doing it either. Um, but people were way into it because you had this like real uh, authenticity to your performance. And, and again, like since you do kind of teach, you were able to kind of inhabit that role and, and come across so natural, so effortlessly natural. Um, what was it like to be the person who's usually, um, standing on the other side of the camera helping somebody get to something, achieve what they want to do versus suddenly being the person in front of camera who's doing something that, they are so insanely good at, but has never once done in their life. You know what I'm saying? Like 
you're an actress. You've been acting forever. You just never did it in front of a camera. And yet you put so many people in front of cameras on a regular basis. So it had to be fucking tripendicular for you. Yeah, it was. Tripendicular. But now we're in the 80s. Yeah. Like, I gotta, <laughs> it had to be fucked up it's for you. It's because of my flip. Yes, yeah. yeah I'm okay. trapped in a time warp. Yeah, there you go. Um, it's really because I, and I have to say this, this is not hyperbole and it's not, uh, it, you were there. Mm. So I was able to. Right. Uh, you know, you have, you, you see, but you did it. You did it. This is the, this is this guy and he'll deflect, but. I had a transit. There were four paragraphs, three paragraphs, three paragraphs, if I remember. Mm. The first two paragraphs were pretty dense. And then there was a transition to the third paragraph. And that transition was giving me trouble. And I had done so much analysis on it. Um, I, I did my research. I reread. Thank you very much. Yes, I did. I reread them. We get guns. I did them all, right. all the amendments. And I was having. <laughs> you went and actually looked at the fucking Constitution? Yes, Kevin. I didn't even look at the Constitution <laughs> when I wrote the flick, man. Jesus. <laughs> Just looked it up on Wikipedia. <laughs> so, yeah, I did that. And I, you know, but there was that transition and I was having trouble and you spotted it. Mm. You spotted it. It was, a, was, it was an, it was a bad, it was some bad writing. I was sitting there as the director going like, that's a sloppy handoff. Like she's got no way to gracefully go from, Point C to point D without it seeming like a movie transition of some sort. No, Kevin, I'm just old. No, and you it helped wasn't, me. No, <laughs> it had nothing to do with old. It was literally like the line. It was basically it was a remnant from earlier edits. There had been more stuff in there. Stuff had come out, and by the time you get to this draft, mm-hmm. the shooting draft, it was kind of left a little bit awkward. There had been a more graceful handoff between the two thoughts. And it was now missing. So basically, I just went in there and said, like, just add this real quick. Right. But that's here. That's my point. Yeah, so, but that's, but I, you that's caught easy. it. You caught it. Doesn't matter. You were, you were sensitive. You caught it. You came in. <laughs> basically, you saw that I was about to have a heart attack and you didn't want to call the paramedics. So you helped me and you said, what is, where is that problem there? Oh, first, no, first, no, no, no. This is a lie. Um, my heart was racing so badly that I, th- I really thought I was, you know, anyway. You were, you were really fucking nervous (laughs) where it was so strange. And everyone in the class, all the kids were kids who had come through you. So they were all like, they came into the room and they were like, Deb's in the scene. (laughs) And, uh, and then they were, they were so having such a great time and it was all like, Oh my God, look, she's doing it. Like a big, you had a big fan club in the room and shit like that. And that scared me more. Really? Yes. It would have been better with total strangers and shit. It scared me more because I, you know, I'm looking at Michael and I'm looking at Kyle and, and they're both like, (laughs) and i'm i'm yeah so i was just trying to breathe through it not not do do justice to what you'd written this is an important film for me i love this film and i'm really um you gave us the last uh line in the movie very important not the last line of the movie well it was it was the last line in the movie and then we have a credit sequence that's pretty pretty cool but uh the last scripted uh line in the movie um came from something you had said to me so when you see the flick the last two things that John Goodman said i don't want to spoil it here but came from you you had read the draft uh the previous draft and uh we had this discussion where you right. said uh, something and the sentiment i loved i was like where did you get that <laughs> and you were like i don't know i heard somebody say so I was doing a redraft and I sent you the redraft without telling you that I incorporated that line. I kind of like paraphrased it. 
And um, I got I got this like squealy fucking phone call from her <laughs> after she read it. She's like, "You put that word in the script. That line's in the script." And so I was like, "Yeah, man, it was a boss ass line. You can't leave it behind." And you were you were really like I said earlier, kept us going when people were just saying no left and right. And and you know that's all not only financiers or people uh, you know who might have money to do the flick. We had like people say no on, on casting fronts left and right. Just some people who at first would be enthusiastic. And then when you hit them up with kind of like, you know, some of the, the hurdles they were going to have to jump in order to be the movie, people lose interest real quick, especially when they find out, Oh, there's no money involved. Right. But early on in this movie, we wanted to put John Goodman in it. It was one of the first names that came up, uh, for this role of Keenan in the movie. Problem was when we were planning on shooting, he was still working on Trim right. A or something like yeah. that. So he was unavailable. He was a NA or uh, was an NA, NA not available mm-hmm. on the sheet. And I was like, fuck. So we started going around like, who else would be cool? And, and let's again go for people that are like actors that I've liked and not necessarily bankable names. One of the people we met with and, and got into it with was uh, Dermot Mulroney, mm-hmm. wonderful actor who, um, who I've liked in a number of things. And um, he read the script, dug it, came up to the house. We chit-chatted about it and shit. And he understood what I was going for. And he was into it and blah, blah, blah. Then we had to move production by like two weeks or three mm-hmm. weeks or something. And I guess it pushed into, he got an offer to do a studio movie, some kind right. of Warner Brothers thing, where he was in a Drew Barrymore movie playing someone's dad or some such shit. But it was going to pay a fuck ton more than our movie was ever going right. to pay. So, you know, he was just like, I can't do it. You guys moved your dates and now I'm, I'm unavailable again. So we lost Dermot, but that freed us back up and we looked to get John Goodman again. John Goodman was still doing Tremé. We were still kind of without a shot at, at yep. him. So I had gone to the San Diego Comic Con and I was waiting to go do a Q and A that I do there every year. And upstairs at the Comic Con is a bunch of the Marvel movie people. Right. So uh who's up there but fucking Sam Jackson. Right. And Sam Jackson, I, I don't know very well, but I see him every once in a while. We share common interests. I run into him every once in a blue fucking moon at a comic book store. But years and years ago, I wrote uh, the Indie Spirit Awards where he was the host. So he knew me from that because I wrote a bunch of jokes from him doing shit like that. So I'm standing over there to, uh, to the side, staying far away from the, that's the cool kids in the upper class. There's right. our Robert Downey Jr. and shit. There's Sam Jackson. There's all these cats who are in the Marvel movies and whatnot. And I'm just hanging back because I'm a one man show anyway. And I was just hanging back with Jennifer and chit chat. And all of a sudden Sam Jackson looks over, marches over and he's like, Kev. And he starts talking to me. My friend Malcolm is there and Malcolm's looking at me with wide eyes like, how the fuck do you know Sam Jackson? You know? And uh, I was like, hey, man, how are you? And he's like, nothing, man, just doing this Marvel thing and whatnot. What are you doing? I said, ah, well, you know, I'm, we're getting ready to shoot a movie, hopefully in the fall. This little movie kind of way beneath the stuff that you guys do. He's like, what do you mean beneath it? I was like, we ain't got no money. He's like, they ain't got no money either. <laughs> and he's like, none that they give me anyway, you know. And he was like, what are you doing? I said, this little, it's a movie called Red State. It's kind of a very low budget independent flick, but it's kind of, Cool. And he goes, well, you, 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 you get something in there for me? He goes, and I go, if you're interested, yeah, man, I'll see about sending you a script or something like that. Bullshit conversation you have at the roof of the San Diego Comic Con. Never think twice about it. Till we come to this moment where we're sitting on the phone. We were like, you know what, man? Sam Jackson, uh, asked me what I was doing at Comic Con. Maybe we could go out to him. And so we went out to Sam Jackson and, uh, naturally no agent wants to hear 
hey, man, there's no money. You know, <laughs> right. here's a great script or it could be a great script or right. a great part or could be a great part in the hands right. of your client. But there ain't no fucking money involved in this movie whatsoever. You got to do it for the love. Right. No agent wants to bring that forward to a client, particularly in a weak uh, financial environment, a global economic crisis, if you will. That's right. So there was some reticence on his agent's behalf, I guess, to let him know about like what we were offering. They were like, hey, man, we're going to want like a lot. If there ain't no money up front, we're going to want a big piece of the back end. You know, shit that agents fucking do and whatnot. So I was like, we don't have any cash. John Gordon was like, what's our move? And we can't offer him anything but fucking scale. We're doing the favored nations kind of thing. And I said, well, I know Sam Jackson's into graphics. You know, he's into, he's into comic books. He's into artwork. I have these two awesome Gottfried Helmine paintings that are worth probably close to a couple million bucks that they've appreciated over the years from when I bought them. One gigantic dark Mickey Mouse painting and one that's like two uh, LAPD cops from circa 1950, almost from uh, the era of, uh, what's that fucking movie that Curtis Hansen did? LA Confidential. LA Confidential. Did you cast that? No. No, we fucked that movie. <laughs> um, Almost like Circa LA Confidential, but they're standing over the body of a fallen Donald Duck. It's right. just like a human body with a Donald Duck head. So these two gorgeous paintings, which have been in my house for, since I've lived in Los Angeles. But I, you know, I bought them for one price years ago. They've appreciated in value and I know they're worth a chunk of money. So I said, you know what, man? Let's offer Sam these paintings. Like, I know it's kind of unorthodox, but let's go wampum style. You know, like, I will trade you goods for services. <laughs> you know, and it's not unheard of. When we did Jane Silent Bob Strike Back, Carrie Fisher was like, we were like, well, it only works for a day. And Carrie Fisher was like, don't pay me. Just buy me a set of chairs. There's these chairs with beavers in them that I want. And we were like, excellent. You know, so <laughs> if you go to Carrie Fisher's house and sit in the beaver chairs, Jay and Silent Bob bought them for her, you know? <laughs> and that's what she gave away to be the Harry Bush nun. So um, here we were with this and going like, all right, let me offer Sam Jackson these paintings. He loves artwork. These are amazing fucking pieces. And maybe that'll secure him, and then he'll jump onto the flick, and we're off and running. So we called back his agent, you know, who's being real kind of hard-nosed about, like, you got to come back to his money offer. This is bullshit. And we came back and said, all right, here's a money offer. There will be no money, but... We're going to give you two paintings that are worth close to $2 million. So that's way more than you were ever going to get for your client out of this movie. So go back to Sam, let him know. And, and, you know, we're waiting for the return call. And that put the ball on the agent who was like, how the fuck do I get 10% of a painting? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And so we never heard back. She was just like, she kept telling, oh, no. She was telling John Gordon, well, I can't go back to Sam with that. We can't take Kevin's artwork off of his wall. But I'm like, oh, but meanwhile, you're going to take money out of Kevin's fucking pocket from his back end? Like, don't be all fucking like, you're, it was a real shitty kind of move, man. And it fouled me on the whole thing. So before we went any further, I was just like, she's not even going to take our offer to Sam Jackson. Like, Sam read it and wrote back that he dug it. And well, as he told her to pursue it and like, let's talk and shit. And then she got in the way of it. His agent got in the way of it. And that fucking pissed me off because I'm done with that shit. I'm done with these middlemen fucking game players who make it a shitty process, who got to ruin and put their pissy stuff stamp on it and take their little fucking uh, two ounces of fucking flesh or what a pound of flesh if you will and get in the way of good fucking creative shit so at that moment I was like I love Sam Jackson but it's not worth it his agent just fucked him out of this movie and look he don't need red state Sam Jackson works forever and will work to the end of time and gets cool roles all the time but I know that he liked this movie 
But his fucking person, his, his agent, fucked it for him, man. And I gave a legitimate offer about, hey, man, tell him about these fucking paintings. And you know, I can't tell him about that. I was really put off by that. So I was so steamy about it. And I called you and you were like, please leave me out of this. I know you pick fights with everybody, Kevin, but <laughs> I don't want to be a part of this jihad. I was like, we're going to burn it all down, Deb. It's all coming down, you know. But she was like, let's concentrate on the matter of hand. Don't take your eye off the ball. Instead of worrying about fucking who you need to get revenge on, let's fill this role. <laughs> and I was like, okay. And you were like, I've got very good news for you. I was like, what? And you were like, John Goodman's available. And our dates had finally lined up. He's like, he's done with Treme. I was like, is he coming back for next season? She's like, have you watched Treme? I said, no. She goes, he kills himself in the last episode. <laughs> I was like, that's great for us. You know, that means he's probably not going back. So we reached out, sent him the script and heard back. And it was Bob Gersh at the Bob Gersh Gersh of the Gersh agency, um, who was reps John. And he was like, we told him like, dude, there's no money. There's none of this shit. No agent wants to go to their client and say there's no money, particularly for a movie that's done low budget, that if it takes off and other people get rich, they're like, why the fuck didn't I get rich? And then they go to their agent and throttle them by the neck. So, you know, it's a dicey thing. That's why Sam Jackson's agent played the game she did. But Bob Gersh, he was just like, you know what? If, If everyone gets crazy rich, you know, don't fucking leave us behind. Don't make me look like an asshole. But this guy wants to do the movie and he likes it a lot. And it was just, it was a beautiful version of that versus like the other side. But what was the John thing you were talking about with when you were saying John and, and you were, had lost it on the phone. I felt a little betrayed by it. And, uh, I'm sure it was just one big misunderstanding, but my head exploded and that was the end of it. And that was just on the phone. And I very rarely do that. Yeah. When you start yelling, people um, are just like, did you hear that fucking Deb yelled? (laughs) That's like getting fucking Jesus to slap a child. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Do you find it tough dealing with the agents or how do you, is it a competitive relationship? Is it an antagonistic relationship? It is a collaborative relationship or is it all three? Well, you know, when you first, when I first started out here, here's a great story. Um, and I, I, again, I'm just not going to name names to be respectful, but when I first started out, I was all of, God, I left, I left NYU. I left, I, I started teaching with Stella. I left my teaching position, um, because I met Bonnie Timmerman. She was my, my mentor. Mm-hmm. And I f- started with Bonnie and we did the first season of Miami Vice and then the second season of, not the movie, the series. Right, right, right. Yeah, where's my walker? So there's, <laughs> yeah, so that is going there. fucking far back. <laughs> okay, now easy. Now I can bring up the oh. Walkman. <laughs> So yeah, we did the first two seasons of Miami Vice. We did a couple of really cool movies, including Manhunter. And it was casting boot camp. I learned a lot from her. Mm-hmm. I made it 23 months and I was gone. And and I, then from there, um, I don't know, two scripts landed on my desk. To this day, I don't know how. Um, the first was Last Exit to Brooklyn, mm-hmm. which... Uh, you know, is Uli Edel, mm-hmm. who is the godfather of my firstborn child. And, uh, we spent two years, just, uh, an amazing casting process in New York City in 1987. Jennifer Jason. 88. Movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was just a, that was a, it was just a wonderful time to be in New York. The theater was just, it was just rich. Mm-hmm. Um, it was the days of Kevin Klein at, the, at, 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 the public theater, Meryl Streep at the public theater, you know, the graduating classes of Juilliard and Yale. And it was just rich, 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 um, filled with, with wonderful actors, uh, that 
would do something for 99 cents if it meant something. Right. You know, that was the, those were that, that was that period of independent movie making that was still s- post seventies where mm. all those fabulous movies were made and it spilled over into the eighties. And yeah, there were a lot of big studio films being made. Of course, the second script to land on my desk was sex, lies and videotape. Soderbergh. Yes. And so that's what 88. Cause that movie we came started out in 89. So 87, end of 80, end of 87. Mm. We cast all the way through, and then he shot it in 88, and we released it in 89, and of course it went to Cannes and then Sundance. So, those, but those were the days of, right. I mean, really talking about... And that about, also helped you to cut your reputation, too, I would imagine, because those are two acting movies. Yeah, and they were, you know, first of all, I was I was born and raised in the area of Last Exit to Brooklyn. I'm, I'm from Red Hook, Brooklyn. I It meant a lot to me. Um, Sex, Lies, and Videotape meant a lot to me. Red State means a lot to me. It, these movies that you can throw your, your whole body and heart and soul behind and fight. Mm. You know, you just fight. So I'm down in the trenches and I'm fighting. We had 35 cents to make the movie. And, um, and I remember that, um, um, he wrote it for a specific actress. And again, just to be respectful, I, I will not name names at the moment, but, I sent it to the agent and she read it over the weekend. She called me on Monday. Now I was a young casting director and I, um, uh, you know, you, you, you get a little neurotic, a little, you check yourself. Am I, am I, have anything in my teeth? You know, like, right. am I making sure this is right? You know, and she calls me up and she was somebody, uh, who was very strident, you know, and someone, uh, that I respected quite a lot actually. And she rep- represented fantastic actors and, this one actress that was a, a meteoric rise at, at, at this moment as a young person. And she said, um, let me give you a piece of advice, Deborah. Don't do porno. <laughs> Who gave you this advice? <laughs> Is this your mom? <laughs> My mom loved it. No, um, no this was uh, an agent. This was an agent that don't do porno, meaning... I, no, but I mean really sort of stridently and strictly. Kind of like, I escaped porno? Let me give you a little... <laughs> let me give you a little motherly advice, yeah, yeah, Kevin yeah. Smith. Really? Yeah, that the finger wagging in my face over the phone, metaphorically. Right. Um, and I just didn't know what I had, didn't have any words, so I yeah, didn't know what, what is, to say, what you know, and, and I just went, well, thank you for your advice and thank you for reading it. I'll see you on the other side <laughs> and hung up the phone and just started laughing heartily and called Stephen and he started laughing heartily, though he was very disappointed. He writes about this in the book and the making of sex, lies, right. videotape. So if you want to do the research, you can, <laughs> but it's all there. And, um, you know, well, it's it's a shame because we we that person wasn't in the movie, and then of course, Sex Lies and Videotape became Sex Lies and Videotape, and Sundance became Sundance. That's true. They both they launched each other, man. That was eighty nine, right? Yep. Sundance of eighty nine. That's right. Um, now, when uh, you work with directors, you tend to work with them more than once. People dig you, so you come back. Who have you done multiple flicks with? Gregory Hoblet, Gary Fleeter, Frank Darabont, Stephen. Until I went to Paramount. Um, uh, Robert Schwanky. Mm-hmm. Um, Schwanky uh, just did Red, so you yeah, cast that movie Red. I that did. Was out. You cast Bruce Willis. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, 
Um, and what's, what are the ones you're proud of? Have you done any that have been nominated for uh, Academy Awards We and don't shit? get nominations for Academy Awards. I know you don't, but have you worked on movies that like... You Shawshank pr- got 11 nominations. That's right. Edward got a nomination for his performance for Primal in Primal Fear. Fear. Um, and that's good for your business, right? It's just like, you know, yeah. <laughs> like my manager. Um. <laughs> I got to imagine, like people, if I'm, if I'm like... Uh, Dealing with you, I'm going like, she's worked on shit where people got awards, man. Let's hire her. That's honestly how it kind of works. At really? least that's how I work in this business. Um, people will put resumes in front of you or something like that um, for any number of different jobs on a movie. And I'm not just talking about like cast, talking about uh, crew as well. And you look to see any movie that you know and like. And if you find one, you're like, holy shit, you did this? All right, man, come on. Right. Because then you know you got something to talk to that motherfucker about while you're making the movie. Like, hey, man, what was it like when you guys made Joanna Man? <laughs> you know, I've always wanted to know. <laughs> um, so it's uh, it's ba- it's basically uh, you're the linchpin. You're the person through which everybody passes. Like, you're the person that people on one side of the camera deal with and the person that the people on the other side of the camera deal with. So it's a sp- a special relationship and a tenuous balance that you have to walk yeah. always between creativity and commerce. Yes. Cause uh, you know, uh, you could sit there and talk to your blue in the face yeah. about the right person for the right role, yep. but you're always going to get stymied by the fucking business people who are just like, yeah, but fucking this person's worth $10 million That's right. or a hundred million dollar opening or that something. That game for foreign mm-hmm. is, is, you know, you talked about it. Um, you talked about it right here on mm. the stage and that game for foreign is, because independent, uh, because of the crash, obviously, you know, independent movie money has dried up. So, of course, in each foreign market is different. So, who's hot in France is not hot in Germany, is not right. hot in Japan, etc. And you see, in each house you go to, it's different, you know. So, you just, it, it, the, it, the casting director is in a very funny position because you have to, you have a lot of personalities to manage. Yeah. You have to satiate the uh, agents to make sure that they're heard. Right. They have a hard job. And they need to be heard, right? right? They represent a lot of wonderful actors who a lot of times don't get a lot of, um, don't get as many perhaps opportunities because it's a crowded field or whatever. So they're fighting hard for their people. Right. Um, so I, I have to hear that, you know? Um, but at the same time, I have to keep the ship on track. You know, the ship that you wrote, mm-hmm. you know, that you're going to direct. I have to hear that and I have to carry that message through. At the same time, if this were a studio situation, I have to keep them happy. Right. Right? Now... So many fucking cooks, man. That's it's, a lot. You, know, they, you do have to manage a shit You have to manage a lot, and you have to do it gracefully so that you eventually can get what you want. Yeah, that's the truth. Is that that's what you did? Trick. Jedi mind tricked me into this cast? <laughs> <laughs> no, so that I could get you what you want. Yeah, oh, there was that. So you see what I mean? So if this were a studio situation, mm-hmm. you'd have to sort of... You have to work it through, and hopefully you have a great producer who does that with you. Mm-hmm. Um, like on Red, for instance, you know, um, Lorenzo and and Mark and, you know, all those guys over there with Lorenzo's, they're fantastic. Mm-hmm. And they know exactly, like John Gordon, mm-hmm. you know, you know exactly when you've got a producer like that by your side, you're okay. You've also named two producers that ran studios at one point, so that helps too. Like Lorenzo ran Warner Brothers. And John Gordon ran Universal there for a go. period too. So yeah, I mean, you're talking about two guys who actually wore the suits yeah. and then got to a place where they're just like, you know what? I'd rather make movies instead, but have all that production experience behind yeah. them. 
And then, you know, he, and then of course, Mark Veradian works with him. And then you've got, you know, the Boflins of life and you've got these guys that will go and they'll fight, mm-hmm. you know, and then at the same time, they'll, they'll make it seem like the other guy's idea. Mm. You know and what I mean? A- so that, and you get it. Right. And, and you get, eventually there's a, a bit of a compromise sometimes with the bigger priced, you know, movie tickets, you know, the budgets. Right. But for the most part, they hear you. And that's what it's, you know, it's about. So that's our job. Um, and you do a great job and you did a fantastic job on this movie. I want to see, does anybody, uh, have any questions for Deb? A rare opportunity to talk to a motherfucker who normally wouldn't talk to people like you. <laughs> <laughs> um, let's, uh, here, we got a question right here. Pass that mic on over. Thank you. Um, what's the biggest fight you ever had to put up with for, for, for a casting role? Does that include laying down behind someone's car? Sure, yes. Okay. <laughs> you yeah, can that... do it in the car, too, you know. <laughs> no, Kevin. No. No, no, no. They, yeah, that was pretty much. Um, I have to say, the fight of my life was was probably Primal Fear. Yeah, one of actually one of them. Uh, is that true? Yeah, pretty much. I think that one for Ed Norton. Yeah, just because they were like, "Who is he? Nobody well, knows." Yeah, him. It's it's you know, there's a lot of money riding on it. You know, uh, Richard Gere. Uh, hell of a wonderful guy. You know, and and you, you know, does he want his you know, Fanny out there alone and, you know, sure, he's a movie star and he's a wonderful actor and, but yet he needs help in that film. You know what I mean? So right. it's like that film is, it had the every, every, everything had to work, you know, for the movie to work. Right. You know, all of the joints had to be oiled properly for it to work as a, as a one, as one unit. Um, and there was a lot of, you know, who was this guy? Right. I mean, so can you imagine? The, the lead of your of your movie, it's a big risk, and I have to take my hat off to those folks at Paramount and for supporting Greg and Richard. Was there a certain other person involved where they really wanted that person? No, there, there was nobody else. <laughs> That's the problem. That's why I fired myself three times. So that was you know we 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 looked, but. Uh, have you ever been in a situation where a director has had their heart set on an actor and you've known deep down they are completely wrong for the part? And if so, do you, do you discuss that with the director or do yes. you just sit back and go, well, it's, uh, it's your movie? <laughs> no, it's usually the other way around. When you direct your first movie, <laughs> yeah, I have one of those letters, actually. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. Somebody so. wrote you a letter that was mm-hmm. like, hey, listen, you piece of shit. When yes. you do, when you direct your movie, that's you can right. tell me really. Oh yeah, you queen of darkness. Yes. Really? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. I have it. I still have it. Yeah. So you know, you sort of learn as you get a little older to modulate, and uh, you know when to fight the good fight, and when to take a step back, look at it a different way. Maybe you're missing something. I mean, it's all. It's just about that balance. Just learning constantly. You're always giving them the benefit of the doubt. Don't you ever just sit back and go, cocksuckers? Yeah. They're just doing it because the yeah, I of do. course, yeah, yeah. Yeah. It. Uh, yeah. It just. It depends on the frustration level, and then there's the time when you just want to say, you know what? Go ahead. Yeah. I'll see you at the premiere, and then we'll talk about it. Right. And that's got to feel like uh, frustrating when you throw your hands up where you're like, I'm trying to help you, man. Like, this ain't about, ah, fuck it, go on. No, because it really isn't about 
ego. It's yeah. not. It's no, just it's not. not like I've got to win. Because yeah, I have not, such a big ego. Exactly. Yeah. And also, you don't have anything riding on it. You know what I'm saying? No. Like, it's all their money. It's all their fucking reputation and shit. You're advocating for the strongest, best performer for a particular role. Yeah. You're advocating for the story. And unfortunately, most times we work in a business where everyone's advocating for the box office. Right. And that's just uh, bizarre. That's missing the target, not even hitting the fucking tree. It's hitting some guy in a neighboring field in the ass. (laughs) But it's the way it is for Yeah, and I'm not always right. I mean, it's just, you know, that's that's the other part of it is to learn from that kind of experience, you know. But that's something that I had, it took me a long, it took me some decades to realize that. Yeah. What was the hardest role in Red State to cast? (laughs) Oh, boy. They, they, it wasn't hard. It was it was all just fun. Um, I have to say the shining moment. I mean, well, there were so many. I went with Morgan, and you know, once when they all fell together, you know, and then Morgan then said yes, and then Helen said yes, um, Brian Cox said yes. I mean, it was just celebratory, right? Um, it was really one of besides. I have to say, besides this and and Shawshank, mm-hmm. Red State, and. And primal fear with that group of people, you know, and Lucchese and Hoblet and mm-hmm. all those folks at, at, and you know, um, it was, it was a, it was a pretty celebratory, joyous kind of experience. I really, there was, there was just no, there was nothing negative. I mean, it just happened so be- beautifully. But the icing on the cake was Ernest Borgnine. When he said yes, he's 93. What fucking movie are you talking about? <laughs> I was going, Ernest Borgnine's in our movie? You mean Red? Yes. Yes, sorry. (laughs) I was like, I don't even think she knows who I am. (laughs) He said Red State. You also, Deb cast two Reds in one year. She cast Red and Red State. Sitting there going, Helen said yes. Why didn't you tell me? (laughs) Oh, man. Um, We should probably go out on that note. That's a high note to end on. I'm going to take you backstage, fucking re educate you who the hell I am. I ain't Robert Schwenke, motherfucker. Um, thanks for being here for this edition of Red State of the Union Q&A. Give it up for Deb Aquila. It's been wonderful. We'll see you guys next week, man. Bye-bye. Find more funny shit like this at Smodcast.com. Find more funny shit like this at Smodcast.com. Hi, this is Kevin Smith, one half of Hollywood Babylon, and I'm here to tell you before this show starts, we're making a move. We're leaving our beloved Smodcastle and heading up to the John Lovitz Comedy Club up Universal City Walk. Now, I know right away you're like, man, they're going to fuck me in the ass with parking. Bullshit. We can get you a $7 deal there for valet parking, bitch. Seven bucks. That's pretty damn sweet. But to check us out in our new digs, simply go to babylonralph.com that's right www.babylonralph.com or go to babylonkev.com that's right www.babble b-a-b-b-l-e on o-n kev k-e-v dot com there's two ways 
to go see Hollywood Babylon through two different doors, two inputs. That's what we are. We're a two-input show, man. Stick one in our mouth, one right up the old rear. Come see us up at our new home at uh, John Lovitz Comedy Club up at Universal City Walk. Friday, they sell booze. Booze. You can get a shit-faced and fucking scream shit out. It's like, the fat one got thrown off a plate. He did. And, you know, feel free. You know, it's your right as a drunken patron. I can't guarantee they'll not throw you out, but you know, I'll be game. I'll, 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 I'll volley it back. I sure did. Uh, patron, thank you. You know, I, I wouldn't, I didn't say I was Steve Martin quick or anything like that. In any event, come see Hollywood Babylon this week at the John Lovitz Comedy Club, Universal City Walk. There's so many to choose from. There are so many to choose from on the Smodcast Podcast Network. On Sundays, it's me and Scott doing the classic Smodcast, the show that started it all. Mondays, it's me and Ralph Garman doing Hollywood Babylon. There's so many to choose from. Tuesdays, you get a double shot of goodness, man. Malcolm Ingram's blowhard, as well as Red State of the Union Q&As, our podcast show about our forthcoming movie. There's so many to choose from. On Thursdays, drop the gloves with the puck nuts, the same guys that bring you Tell Em Steve Dave on Fridays. And don't forget on Saturdays, Jay and Silent Bob get old with me and Jason Muse. There's so many to choose from. You could try some shows that aren't so regular, just happen every once in a while, like Highlands, a people history, where me and people that grew up in the town I grew up look back at the town we grew up in. Smarriage at Smod Castle, where real live people get real live married by real Rev Kev. That'd be me. There's so many to choose from. Smodimations, that's where me and Scott are drawn as cartoons. They take little sections of Smodcast we've done and animate them, man, and make them even funnier somehow. And if you've ever been to Smod Castle, then you've met Matt Cohen, and Matt Cohen has his own show, Bagged and Boarded, which is also now at Smodcast.com. There's so many to choose from. I know you keep telling me, man, but did you know that most of the podcasts at Smodcast.com are recorded live in front of a studio audience at Smodcastle, our theater out in Los Angeles on Santa Monica Boulevard between Wilcox and Cole. There's so many to choose from. Scott, even at Smodcastle, there are so many to choose from. Every week, you could see Malcolm Ingram do his show, Blowhard Live. You could see me and Jason Mewes doing Jay and Silent Bob Get Old. You could see Matt Cohen doing Bagged and Boarded. You can come see Tom Green do a show down there. You could see me and Mosier doing the occasional Smodcast 3D. There's so many to choose from. That's right. For one low price, 100 bucks, you could see every show. That happens in Smodcastle for a month. Every show you go, you get that basically comes down to be like four bucks a show. I mean, come on, you can't get a better deal than that. Go to smodcastle.com slash smodpass for the smodpass, or just stay right here on smodcast.com and listen to any of the shows that we throw up there free for nothing because we love you. And guess what? There's so many to choose from. That's right, Scott. There are so many to choose from. Smodcast.com. There's so many to choose from.